You want to go ahead and read the thing? Okay. Picture, if you will, the world's prettiest beach. It's just under a kilometer of bright white sand nestled between a pair of rocky headlands. The water is clear and calm, as warm as a bath, and takes on a hundred different tones of blue as it washes gently over coral, fish, and the occasional clump of kelp. More than beautiful, the water feels safe. It's so shallow you can wade half a kilometer out from the water's edge and still only be waist-deep. A few breakers curl in the distance, but the only current is the gentle swish at your legs as the waves move in and out. There's a shark net somewhere out ahead keeping the big fish away, and behind you a half-dozen professional lifeguards are patrolling the beach, keeping a watchful eye on the surfers and swimmers sharing the water with you. The sun blazes down, a few white fluffy clouds float overhead, and as you stretch out on the water and lazily begin to swim, you simply can't imagine anything to be worried about in this idyllic setting. Welcome to Bondi Beach, one of the most dangerous beaches in the world. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, advisor to the Historic Beach Safety Department here at Relative Disasters University. And I'm her brother, Greg, vice president of the Tropical Beach Events Department here at Relative Disasters Incorporated. Thank you so much for that horrifying little overview, Greg. Yeah, it's set up like a horror movie. You get the the whole, like, everything's perfect, and then boom, in comes the monster. It's the first five minutes, yeah. It is, it is. It's all set up. So today we're going to be taking a look at the events of Black Sunday where a series of freak waves dragged hundreds of beachgoers, many of whom couldn't actually swim, into the deep water off Australia's very beautiful and very popular Bondi Beach. So we like to begin our stories as far back as possible. So I'm just going to take you back to prehistoric... No, I'm kidding. Uh... (laughs) We're going to go back to Pangaea, before Australia (laughs) sheared off from the rest of the supercontinent. It was a quiet day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, seriously though, I'd like to note here before we get into our discussion that we're discussing land traditionally occupied by the Gadigal and Bidigal clans of the Eora Nation. These people gave the beach its name. Bondi or Bundai is the word that both clans use for water breaking over rocks. So it's kind of like a surf breaking sound, which does tie into our story. We're going to talk about breaking waves a lot. Okay. At the time Europeans arrived in the area now known as New South Wales, around 1,500 Aboriginal people used the beach as like a campsite. Okay. Um, they used the plants growing in the lagoon behind the beach for food, clothing, medicine, and building. And of course, they fished in the ocean because this beach is really shallow at low tide. You can wade in with a spear and get quite a few fish for not a lot of effort. Nice. In fact, the water along Bondi Beach is full of many species of animals, including some that can be eaten and a couple that are happy to eat you. Yes. Yes. When Those we think of favorites. Australia, <laughs> we think of venomous animal with big teeth. Um, yeah, that's and usually the first no thing exception. that jumps to mind with Australia. <laughs> What's going to kill me? Yep. Uh, So here on Bondi, we have the blue-ringed octopus, as well as jellyfish, sharks, sea snakes, and stingrays. But out of respect to our uncle, who is a marine biologist working with sharks, 
I do have to give you a caveat that when we say deadliest, we're talking about potentially deadly. So yes. venom and teeth and stingers, ability to kill lots of people. Right. Not, Not necessarily. necessarily. <laughs> they, they don't want to go out and kill people. What were you telling me that cows kill more people in Australia than any other animal? That's so disappointing. No, cows kill more people worldwide than sharks. They're really playing the long con with those big eyes and eyelashes. And well, the... I also got to assume that if we farmed sharks, probably a lot more people would get killed. I think it's just got to do with like human proximity stuff. But at the same time, yeah, sharks don't kill a lot of people. They have this reputation for, you know, being mindless, voracious killers and... They're really not. So I do have to say that the blue ring octopus and the box jellyfish, the two species that are really difficult to manage and result in a lot of injuries and fatalities, they're only responsible for about 65 deaths in the past 100 years. And yeah. sharks, your friend who you love, yep. only caused 38 fatalities off the coast of Australia during the same time period two of which were at Bondi. You should check out what a blue-ringed octopus looks like, dear listeners, because they are adorable. They're these They're little, so cute! Tiny, they are so cute! And never, ever, 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 ever pick one up because they will straight kill you. They're adorable, though. As a defense mechanism. Yeah, they don't. They don't like being picked up. I do have a note here. The thing that's most likely to send you to the hospital after a swim at Bondi is okay. actually a bad sunburn. People don't realize yep. how intense the sun is and get yep. dehydrated and yeah, yeah. Okay, so from an animal perspective or like an animal attack perspective, it's actually pretty safe. So Bondi, like all sand beaches, is an incredibly fragile ecosystem. Yeah. Before the first fleet arrived in Botany Bay, that's the first load of English convicts coming into New South Wales, the penal colony there. Mm -hmm. That happens in 1788. And back then, the beach was allowed to be in a beach. You had these clans coming through using the resources, but they weren't building permanent settlements. And right. they weren't really trying to change anything about the beach or the area surrounding the beach. So at that time, it was like a mass of big sand dunes that kind of moved around with the wind and the tide and the storms. And the dunes were backed by a swampy lagoon with vegetation that held everything in place and controlled like backflow erosion. Right. In 1810, an English settler named William Roberts was given a huge land grant that included the beach. And he used it for... He had cattle. He used it for cattle grazing. Oh, for God's sake. On a beach? We're back to the cows. Yeah. Why? All I can picture are like those far side comics where the cows are places they shouldn't be. Right. Yeah. Like, first of all, there's not like if you're talking about a white sand beach, there is not a lot for a cow to eat there. Okay. Well, he had 200 acres. So I'm assuming okay. there okay. was vegetation okay. over some of that. It wasn't just the beach. That would be really mean to the cows. Okay. So the land changes hands in 1830 and then again in 1870. And during this time, the city of Sydney, which is four miles away, is really expanding rapidly, and it kind of swallows up Bondi. Okay. Uh, urban sprawl and development arrive at the end of the 19th century. And when the owner of the beach starts, like, opening the beach to the public, people really enjoy getting there. It's easy to get to. Sure. Uh, it's at the end of a tram line, which it still is. There's a bus stop. You can just hop off the bus and walk down to the beach. Okay. Uh, so when he dies in 1882, the local council buys the beach and establishes a public reserve. Now, they're not establishing a swimming beach at first because swimming is indecent and ungodly and no oh, respectable yes. person would want to do it. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like a picnic place and swimming is actually prohibited. Now, Sure. You would think that they did this for safety reasons, but at this time, nobody really understands how dangerous the water is or why it's dangerous. Right, because they're not they allowed to swim They just see the water and they're like, 
I don't know, guys. Let's just stay on the beach and have picnics. Okay. So they actually prohibit bathing in the ocean during daylight hours, which really begs the question, are there like people trying to like exploit that as a loophole? <laughs> like, oh, hey, the sun's down. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to hop in the water now. Eventually, the city caves. They realize people want to swim. They build these bathing sheds at the turn of the century. They're okay. kind of like changing rooms, uh, but they don't have roofs and you can see down into them from the train station. So again, we're not we're not really thinking this through as like a massive public <laughs> destination okay. yet. This is just like a little a beach with a bunch of shacks and you can swim or not swim. Cool. You know, the other beaches in the area are developing and the okay. council who owns the beach decides that they want some of that sweet sweet Sweet, sweet public beach money. Cash. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they decide they're going to do a few things to the beach to make it a little more user-friendly. Okay. Uh, they're going to get rid of the dunes, and they're going to get rid of the lagoon. Okay, so anybody who has studied beach ecology knows that those are really bad ideas. But, of course, beach ecology didn't really exist at this time. But No, and, and to them, they're like, we've got sand, and it's like... A problem so we're just going to move it over here Ugh. and then we're going to put a road but don't worry we're also going to build a concrete seawall and that's uh. going to keep everything in place and then just just you know have fun people okay. no no problems here nothing to see here so cool and i don't know from my research i don't know that removing the dunes made the conditions here more dangerous i would think they would because the sand under the water and the sand above the water are interrelated and it's the sand under the water that creates so many dangerous conditions in this in this place yeah but again i could find like one abstract of a thesis that sort of looked like it talked about this i'm assuming people are looking into it i don't have an answer for you okay so when the beach gets flattened it starts looking like it does today uh which is like a flat semicircle of bright white sand and it's backed by a seawall and it's got the usual, like, beachfront developments. They've got seafood restaurants, hotels, parks, million-dollar houses, etc. And by 1929, the beach is so popular that the council builds Bondi Surf Pavilion. Okay. Which is a huge, like, state-of-the-art complex of changing rooms, cafes, bathrooms, and this huge shady porch where you could sit and watch the beach. Cool. But for all its good looks... <laughs> The water at Bondi can be very, very dangerous. Well, we'll get into the permanent physical hazards first, which are two aspects of the beach's geological structure. There's a reef way offshore, yep. which kind of channels the water in some unexpected directions. Mm -hmm. And then there are several sandbars that are really close to the shore. Now, the reef and the shore working together kind of cause like a permanent riptide that's shaped by the sandbars which are constantly changing. Yeah. So they're always in the same area, but the force and directionality have some kind of like unexpected aspects to them. Sure. And these currents can also be very, very strong, especially on the southern end of the beach. Okay. They're so strong and so like sort of predictable that they have names. Okay. So there's one at the south corner, which is called the south corner rip. Okay. There's one at the end of the bus stop that's called backpackers rip. Because backpackers hop off the bus, yep. drop their backpack, and just go into the water, not realizing <laughs> that it's absolutely not swimming water over yep. there. Uh, so part of the problem is that 
At low tide, the beach looks like calm, clear, beautiful bath water. So if you're walking on a sandbar in the late afternoon, you can be quite a ways out and only waist deep without realizing that there's very fast, very deep water a few steps away. Yeah. If you're a strong swimmer and you know how to get out of an undertow, you can still exhaust yourself trying to get back to safer water. Right. If you don't know how to swim and you don't understand how the beach works, you could be in a lot of danger very quickly. Because not only is this water rushing in unexpected directions really quickly, but there are rocks on either side of the beach. The beach is shaped like a U. Okay. The sand is at the bottom. There are like huge, sharp rocks and cliffs just waiting to eat you up on either side of the beach. Yikes. Sometimes they're a little bit underwater. Oh, <laughs> you can't see them. But the waves will absolutely pick you up and smash you in there. They don't care. They're waves. Right. Waves have no mercy. Right. And Bondi is also famous for dumping waves. <laughs> have you ever heard of these? No. They're fast waves that break with a lot of downward force. Okay. So that they develop a tube with a crest coming down over the rest of the wave. Oh, okay. Yeah, They're yeah. breakers. They're just like big, powerful breakers. And, and those, those uh, are They're great for surfing. surfers. Yeah. Right, right. Because they create that like big, powerful, speedy wave that can get a surfboard going really fast. Nice. But for swimmers in shallow water, dumping waves will knock you off your feet slam you into the bottom of the ocean and roll around they'll at least keep you under until it passes and they come in series it's never just one wave right um and at worst they're going to smash you into those sharp, sharp rocks, rocks. Yep. or spine first onto the ocean floor or onto a shark or a blue ring octopus right again we should note the waves are these dumping waves the dangerous ones for swimmers they aren't always present at bondi hmm. and when they are they can move around right kind of as the tide or the sand or the wind shifts right. and those shifts can happen very quickly and it's one of the things that the lifeguards look out for okay so it's like the worst riptide you can imagine okay so the riptide will bring you into the dumping waves and the dumping waves will kill you yeah the riptide is trying to drown you it's trying to sweep you out into the pacific ocean yep. and drown you and uh, exhaust you because you're trying to swim back to shore. And the dumping waves will actually beat you to death. Does that make sense? So cool. So cool. This, yeah. This... So they're really like working together. They're good friends. Yeah. Trying to kill everybody. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So in the 1880s, in the 90s, and at the turn of the century, when daytime swimming finally becomes like a popular thing to do at Bondi, People do so wearing, I'm just going to take a sidebar because I can't help myself uh, and talk about swimsuits. Yes. These are amazing. People <laughs> people do so wearing full-on, multi-layered, body-covering, knitted wool bathing costumes, yes. which include bloomers, sleeves, stockings, and shoes, if you're a lady, and belted, buttoned, romper-like garments, also with shoes, also with a skirt required by the council because swim trunks are considered indecent yep. if you're a proper Victorian gentleman. Yes. Now, they didn't require skirts for very long, but I just included that because I love it so and, much. And what were these skirts <laughs> made of, Ella? I'm so glad you asked. They are made of knitted wool. Every inch of this costume is made with wool. So when you think about... <laughs> <laughs> when you put those two things together, when you think about wading into riptides and getting caught in a dumping wave off Bondi Beach, wearing 25 pounds of wet wool and leather shoes, right? you can see why the council was like, we might have to do something. Because the number one point of running a public beach is... Uh, making money from the people going there. <laughs> well, you can't make money if everyone drowns. No. That, that's, well... You're trying to keep the drownings to a minimum. <laughs> 
the least the less they looked at <laughs> they looked at bathing suits and they were like well no these bathing costumes are perfect we obviously don't want to change anything about that uh but also you know you can't really change a riptide you can't change the way that the waves come in yeah so in 1907 concerned citizens formed not one but two volunteer lifeguard organizations these are the bondi surf bathers life-saving brigade okay and the bondi surf and social club which one sounds more fun uh the surf and social club sounds more fun the life-saving brigade Doesn't sounds it? more useful yeah uh they actually change it they change the name when people don't take the surf club and surf and social club seriously. Oh no. They change it to the North Bondi Bathers Lifesaving Brigade. Sweet. <laughs> so, these are actually the first two surf lifeguard organizations in the world. Really? So these guys are trendsetters. Yeah. That's cool. And they immediately come up with some ways to make the beach safer, including building watchtowers to keep an eye on the swimmers. They develop a system of safety flags to define the safest places to swim. Okay. Uh, they learn how to resuscitate people who have drowned. That's useful. And they learn how to bring people in from heavy surf, which is extremely, extremely difficult. Yeah. The safety captains on Bondi do as much training as they possibly can, and then they start realizing that they need some specialized equipment. Yep. Yeah. You know I love an invention. So they invent the surf life-saving reel which dates from 1906-1907. So as the clubs are forming, this is the first thing they do. It's a harness on a rope that wraps around a big cast iron reel on legs. So if you're a lifeguard, you put the harness on, you swim out to the person in trouble, and either you grab the person or put the harness on them, and then you signal your four buddies at the reel, and they crank you all back they just in. They you in, yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's a good invention, except, well, we'll see. <laughs> Okay. The early lifeguards also used surf mats and surfboards, yep. and they were trained in drowning resuscitation. But the thing they really concentrated on was being really fast, powerful swimmers. Yes. And understanding the nature of the rip currents and the waves and which ways they tended to affect people who were in the water swimming. Okay. So if you wanted to be a volunteer surf lifeguard in the early 1900s, you had to have a lot going on in terms of training and physical fitness. Yeah. So these guys, they're all men at this point. They're like Baywatch beach heroes. Oh, yeah. They're saving people frequently. And the rescues are like a source of fascination for the beach community. I mean, this is high drama. If you watch the reality show Bondi Rescue from any time in the past 16 years, you will see the exact same thing. You will see this kind of dramatic rescue and the lifeguard saves the person and gets a round of applause. I mean... There's just something in humans. We love a good rescue. Agreed. I think the equivalent is like a volunteer firefighter. Yeah. Like they're very serious about rescuing people. Yeah. And they put themselves in danger to rescue people. Okay. And that's pretty, pretty admirable. Okay, so. so this is the point where lifeguards reach this kind of level where okay. these are these guys are volunteers until like the 1980s. Oh, wow. Okay. Nobody's paying them to do this. They're just doing it for fun. It's almost like a sports team. Gotcha. Uh, they train all year and make these rescues very frequently during the peak season, which is our winter, December through March. Right. Their summer. Yep. Uh, they do a lot of like competitions and they do a lot of things like surfing and sailing. And they also hold these beach carnivals with other life-saving clubs. So now that the beach is being patrolled, and especially after the council installs a shark net in 1937, it's seen as being perfectly safe. Okay. So it becomes like 
the place where you go to learn how to swim. You take your kids there. Because it's so shallow. It's shallow and warm. And, and there's nothing in there that's going to hurt right. you. So you can rent a surf mat, which is like a little inflatable rubber mat. Okay. And just kind of float around in the waves. It's like a boogie board. Yeah. And if you're a tourist, even in 1907 or the 1920s, it's still a really easy place to get to. You just go to Sydney and you hop off your tram and you're right at the beach. Nice. Okay. So on summer weekends, holiday weekends, days when the surf is high enough for surfboards, carnival days, sunny days, days ending in Y, attendance at the beach. (laughs) Attendance at the beach can reach... 30,000 people, yeah. even in the 1920s. And remember, the beach is only one kilometer long, and maybe 100 meters of that is safe for swimming at any given time. Okay. So the lifeguards really have their work cut out for them. Right. On February 6, 1938, which was a calm, hot, sunny Sunday, yep. the beach was packed. So estimates are more than 35,000 people are there. Yeah. And the innermost sandbank was unusually large. So when the tide was fully out, around three o'clock in the afternoon, swimmers and waders had this huge stretch of waist-deep warm water to splash around in. So let's just picture that. You've got moms and dads paddling around with their kids, uh, people who can't swim wading in to cool off, people who might not otherwise have been in the water splashing around with their friends. The lifeguards are changing shift. And the other life-saving club, who was there for a surf competition, they were just arriving and getting changed into their swimsuits. And a quick note about this swimwear, <laughs> because I can't stop myself. Yep. This is not the bulky bathing costumes that we were describing earlier, but it's the same fabric. It's knitted wool made into one or two piece little outfits that still have skirts and belts and buttons and sleeves, depending on the style. And the lifeguards are doing their thing in a uniform that is belted, buttoned wool trunks and these very charming, like, strappy V-neck singlets. Yep. Again, all in wool. Okay. And they also have little bathing caps that tie under the chin and leave your ears out. Okay. So all of a sudden, at least three, possibly as many as six, huge waves crash in from the open ocean, one after another. Now, it's really unclear what causes them. They're described as rogue waves that may have been attributable to a flash rip current, so like a sudden change in the underwater conditions that causes this really strong rip current. Uh, But there's no associated storm or earthquake to point to. Those are the other causes that usually are associated with rogue waves. But what's not in question is the enormous volume of water they carry into the shore and the speed in which they're moving, which is so fast that the waves are right behind each other. So you know how normally ocean waves come into a beach and then like wash out before they come in again? It's like an inhale, exhale. Yeah. These waves don't do that. Yeah. They come in without time to wash back out. So waves two and three pile up on top of wave one, and they flood the entire beach with this huge volume of water. Yeah. And then they all drain out together, yep. creating this incredibly powerful current, kind of backwashing this crowd of people who had been, like, perfectly fine, waiting out over the sandbars. They're rushed out into the deep water. Yep. So about 250 people are, within seconds, pulled away from the edge of the sandbar, right past the headlands and into the chilly and very deep water of the Pacific Ocean, which is our deepest and chilliest and scariest ocean, I think. Yeah, so they're, they they go from being like maybe 100 feet offshore to over 80 yards just out. 
and this is 250 people at once. I think it's the volume of water <laughs> well, yeah. that I have so much trouble with because you're in water up to your knees, which, yep. you know, it's comfortable for people like me who are afraid of everything. And then all of a sudden, you're in the ocean. Yep. You're like being pulled into the ocean yep. faster than you should be moving. Okay. Yeah, and faster than you can possibly swim against it. Absolutely. Right. A teenager named Norma Allerding was waiting with her dad when the waves came. Uh. It is a day I will never forget. All of a sudden, this huge wave came and we were tossed around. And my father was panicking because I wasn't a strong swimmer. It was horrific. It was pandemonium everywhere. End quote. And you also have to remember that the beach was really crowded. Yeah, 35,000 people. People are grabbing each other. Yeah. And this is obviously immediately recognized as an emergency. Yep. So the lifeguards already had their surf reels down on the beach in anticipation of having to fish people out of the water. Yep. And half a dozen grabbed their harnesses and started swimming out. Now, as soon as they get to the people who are struggling, they're immediately surrounded by people who are just in absolute panic. Yep. They're grabbing at the rope, the lifeguards, each other, anything they could to try and keep their heads up. And this is one of the things that they that, that is most dangerous for lifeguards. There's nothing worse than somebody who is doing what's called active drowning because they are mm -hmm. terrified and they will drag you down with them. Right. And meanwhile, the tr the lifeguard's trying to get to the person who's really drowning, yeah, they're not trying actively to get to somebody drowning, who's like but unconscious, unconscious. And slipping under the right. water. Yeah. And, right, and right. the thing is, is that the people who are who are yelling and screaming and reaching for you, they actually teach you to come up behind them like a horror movie villain to grab them because that way they can't easily like twist around and grab your head and shove you under because... So the lifeguards are in danger. Everybody in the water is in danger. And they're all clinging onto these ropes, which are attached to the reels. The ropes are cotton. They can't take the strain and they start to snap. So this is where people get inventive. There are people in the water. They need help. Everybody pitches in. Right. There's a surf ski on the beach that day. This is like another fun Australian beach invention. Have you ever heard of these? Yes, actually. These are neat. So I thought it was like a primitive jet ski, but it's really not. No. <laughs> Um, th they sometimes called them surfoplanes. No, no, no. The surfoplane is different. Oh, oh, never mind. Then I don't know what this is. Go ahead. The surf ski is... <laughs> okay, it's... I don't know why anyone invented this. Uh, <laughs> it's a fat, hollowed-out surfboard. Okay. I want you to picture this. Okay. It's made out of cedar. It's 11 feet long, and it's six inches high. Okay. And the operator sits on the top with their feet tied to the board and uses a double-bladed paddle to move around and steer. It kind of looks like the worst aspects of a surfboard because it's really tippy and a kayak. Uh, if you know what you're doing, it floats really well. And if you're an experienced surfer, you can ride it in heavy surf for like a, for like a, okay. a sit down surfing experience. <laughs> if you if you have balance problems, maybe. I don't know. I can't explain this, but uh, there's one there. A man named Asher Hart brought his new surf ski to the beach that afternoon to try it out. And he gets swept out with the waves, but this thing is really buoyant. Right. So he capsizes right away. Yep. Uh, but he's able to not only hang on to the board, but grab some nearby people who were struggling nice. and help them hang on. Yeah. Cool. Now we get to the surfo plane. Okay. Surfo These are plane. inflatable surf mats. Yes. And the lifeguards are using them as rescue equipment. The people who are there on the beach to relax and play are using them as, like, bodyboards. Yeah. So you kind of, like, paddle out, you float back in, you paddle out, you float back in. It's like an air mattress. <laughs> you just, like, lay on it and paddle around. 
And it's these are still around today. Yeah. I read a website that will sell you one, and they claim it's like gliding over the water. All right. So at this point, almost everyone at the beach who can swim is trying to help these people. Surfers paddle out. Uh, strong swimmers go out to try and rescue people. And just random things like buoys and rubber floats are thrown into the water for people to grab onto. Nice. Okay. Lifeguards who can't get to the reels grab surfboards and surfo planes, and some of them just jump in. A number of the people the lifeguards are trying to bring in first are drowning victims who have already lost consciousness. Yeah. The head lifeguard, Tom Meager, describes it like this. As each unconscious patient reached the beach, work of revival immediately commenced. And when the surf had been cleared of all bathers, the beach somewhat resembled a battlefield with so many apparently dead receiving artificial respiration. Around 60 cases received treatment, and of them, about 40 were in a really bad way. Yeah. Now, formal CPR techniques, like mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, haven't been invented yet. Right. Do you know we've only had CPR since the 1950s? I did know that. That blows my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always thought about, like, cave people pulling each other out of the swamp and knowing <laughs> compressions. that they have compressions. <laughs> to the beat of staying alive by the Bee Gees. Yep, and... yep. Which has also been okay. around forever. But no, the um, <laughs> one of the things that they did know was to turn the person's head to the side and mm-hmm. apparently one of the one of the techniques they had would be to dig a small hole in the sand lay the person on their stomach with their head in that hole turned sideways and then Ugh. essentially push on their back and stomach to force water out and oh that sounds horrible but it works also we didn't have the heimlich maneuver yet so oh geez yeah. god things were so unsafe back then <laughs> Uh, so the two methods that they were trained in were the Schaefer method and the Sylvester method. Now, the Schaefer method, you're kind of laid out. Actually, this might be the one with the hole for the face. Okay. Because uh, you're laid out face down in the sand, and the person rescuing you squats over your butt and starts putting rhythmic pressure on your mid-back with the idea that the lungs are going to empty out and the victim is going to start breathing. Yep. It looks ridiculous. It looks even more ridiculous when the person who is trying to save your life starts vigorously rubbing your back and legs to get circulation going. They kind of hop over you. Yep. And it's real. It works uh, sometimes, <laughs> but it just looks really painful. Uh, The Sylvester method is not any better. This is where the victim is face up, their head is elevated, and their arms are pulled vigorously all the way back and then crossed and pushed down hard on their chest. Uh This is also to get your lungs going again and hopefully get the person breathing and then you get the pulse back. I watch videos of both to see what they look like in action, and it's just like the most aggressive physical therapy massage you can imagine. (laughs) The most aggressive and the most weird you would just you would be bruised all over if you survived either one of these techniques. And I have to tell you that they are incredibly ineffective compared to modern CPR. Okay, but But on Black Sunday But straight up modern CPR modern CPR, you are also going to be covered in bruises and in a lot of pain. You're probably gonna have cracked ribs and everything else. So I mean But nobody's squatting on your butt. It's just I just the difference of, of efficiency at this point. Like this Nobody's digging a hole in the sand for your face. <laughs> True. I don't like anything about that, except that it would be great to not drown. Yeah, there there is that aspect of things. There is that. Because <laughs> the whole point of this isn't isn't so much to like, you know, work with the heart as it is to get the water out of the lungs, and that's right. The... And then everything kind of resets. Uh, hopefully. And <laughs> ideally, if... ideally, right? Yep. So. So even though these are not 
the most effective methods. On Black Sunday, the lifeguards do manage to revive dozens of people who are not conscious or breathing, uh, whose hearts have stopped beating, which is incredible. And the lifeguards all survive, though one has to be resuscitated after he was swarmed and pulled under by 25 panicking swimmers in the deep water. And his line snapped. That one. Yeah, I mean. The, the, The rescue line, he was supposed to drag in the one person. All these people got on him. They started trying to pull him in and the line snapped. I mean, my God. You have to imagine that the inventors of the surf reel were like, how do I help a drowning person? And they don't ever imagine that it's going to be a crowd of 250 drowning people who are going to need saving. Tragically, four of the people who were washed out to sea and retrieved by lifeguards did not respond to resuscitation and died on the beach. Their names are Bernard Byrne. Ronald McGregor, Leslie Potter, those guys all drown in the surf. And Charles And Sauer. Charles L. Sauer, who's known as Sweet, yeah. drowns trying to rescue a little girl. The little girl survives. <sighs> Finally, a man named Michael Kennedy, who's known as Taylor, is identified as missing. And his body is found at sea. Okay, so Black Sunday was huge news across eastern Australia. And the dramatic mass rescue leads to the flourishing of surf life-saving clubs. Yes. So they suddenly go from, like, your local sports team to guys that you really need to be trained and responsive. And you need lots of them if you have a big beach. Uh, Women are allowed to become lifeguards in the 1970s. People invest heavily in lifeguard training and equipment and resources. I'm sorry. Speaking of women, uh-huh. can I shoehorn in this quote from one of the rescuers? Uh, sure. So quick. Oh, is it about women? It's about the women. Yes. <laughs> I saw this too. I love this. Uh, one of the most amazing features of the tragedy was the extraordinary panic among the men and the comparative calmness of the women. Quote, the men were crying like girls, shrieking with terror and shouting wildly for help, the rescuer said. On the other hand, the girls were calm and seemed to wait quietly, keeping above water as best they could until they were rescued, end quote. <laughs> Just, come Yeah, on, man. I mean, <laughs> uh, right. Women were actually rescuing people before the 1970s. Like, if they saw someone struggling, uh, women knew how to rescue people who were drowning. Like, they would borrow a life-saving reel and paddle out and rescue someone. Uh, So it's not like they were unable. It's probably just the extra 25 pounds of the bathing costume that were slowing them down a little. Okay, so people continued to visit Bondi and the other beaches around Sydney in ever-increasing numbers, and development has hurried on. So these days, it's still one of the most popular beaches in New South Wales, and people visit for not only swimming and surfing, but the golf course and the skate park. (laughs) Okay. So in 2018, on the 80th anniversary of Black Sunday, the life-saving clubs held a reenactment of the rescue. Using the equipment and resuscitation techniques of 1938, 150 lifeguard reenactors from across Australia got on their best wool bathing suits. Oh, gosh. I hope they had undies on. And showed onlookers what happened, minus the rogue waves. Today, people are still so fascinated with life-saving at Bondi, that it has its own reality show, Bondi Rescue, okay. which has been running since 2006 and is now on its 16th season. I can't tell you how much I have watched, <laughs> watched the show. It is the most soothing and relaxing thing to put on when like, you're sick and you need to be on the couch. Okay, You're just like looking at a beautiful sunny beach and people being saved. Cool. 
So I'd like to conclude our Black Sunday episode with a quote from a witness named Ted Lever, who was 16 years old at the time and went on to become a lifeguard at Bondi himself. There were probably many heroes on the beach that day, and I would think that that was the day the surf life-saving in Bondi came of age. We were given all of those things to deal with. We lost five people, but it was a tremendous day in surf life-saving history. And that is the story of Black Sunday. Yeah. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. <laughs> What's it going to be, Greg? So for our next disaster, Ella, we're going to go to the Western United States mm-hmm. and uh, look for some diamonds because Ugh. they're out there, man. There are diamonds in Wyoming and Colorado, at least according to the people who pulled off the diamond hoax of 1872. Oh, that's an early scam. Can't wait. <laughs>